On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his, his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Everyone serves a good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana and Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This evening, it's key to understand this passage. We must understand that last sentence. And his disciples believed in him. I want to draw that to your attention. And it's not just for this passage, but it's all of Scripture. If you remember, John, in John 1 and in John chapter 20, he tells us the reason for the gospel. Christ, John was able to lean on Christ's breast. He was able to touch him, to hear him, to see the very glory of God in Christ. And now he's saying, he's showing us, this is, in this moment, he again saw the glory of God manifested, and he believed. And in John chapter 20 now, he's sharing that with us. And the reason this is important is that I think, for myself anyway, I can say that many times when I read Scripture, I don't remember that it's not like our day where we use words flippantly. We're used to Twitter, if you use that, or even blogs, where we don't think about the words that we're necessarily saying. But in here, as in all of Scripture, John has captured every detail exactly as it needs to be. There's many details he's also decided to leave out. Because he is trying to show us what Christ showed him. Maybe at this very time, he didn't understand all of it, and Christ would explain that to him later, or even by the work of the Spirit. But it's really important that we understand, because in this passage, really, I don't have a red-letter Bible up here, but there wouldn't be much red in this passage. Christ doesn't actually really say a lot. Whereas if you go to chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000, Christ has a whole section, very, very many verses, I haven't counted, count, counted how many, where he explains the sign, and he gets into a debate about it. Here, we're not really given that. But yet, we have to pay attention to every little detail in here, because throughout all Scripture, we're told what these things mean. So God is not reactive to anything, but God, before time, has purposed every detail for us to understand. And the main detail here is that it's a wedding at Cana, and for that reason, I want to look through that lens That's why the title of the sermon is, The First Sign, Jesus Reveals Himself as Our True Bridegroom. And we're going to look at that through three points. 
First, the occasion for the sign, and this is really the context of where, of where this is taking place. Secondly, the reason for the sign. And thirdly, the meaning of the sign. Now, the reason for the sign and the meaning of the sign might be confusing. So the reason of the sign, the second point, is really why is there a need for the sign at all? Whereas point number three, the meaning of the sign is let's interpret the sign. Let's look at what we're, the details that we're given. So first of all, the occasion for the sign. I think given that we've had a wedding here just yesterday, uh, this theme is very appropriate. But one thing that's interesting to me when I was thinking about weddings this week is all the customs that we have in our weddings. Have you ever thought about all the customs? A lot of times you don't realize how strange maybe some of the customs may be for people who don't know the meanings of the customs. When we go to other cultures, you'll notice they do a lot of strange things there, but of course they'll think the same things about us. We have a lot of customs in our weddings. And what was really neat about me about this week is when I was studying this, I realized when Christ and in Scripture, when they refer to weddings, they're not referring to American modern weddings. They're referring to ancient Jewish weddings. And when you start learning about what that, how that worked, it really brings a depth and an understanding. Even the passages that I didn't know were being referred to as the bridegroom and the bride. And we'll go over that as we, as we uh, towards the end especially. But right now I just want to talk to you about what those customs were. And maybe you'll see some of those connections. So in Jewish weddings, the first thing is that it was a large community event. Our weddings now can be very large, and sometimes they're small, and that's fine. But for Jewish, the Jewish weddings, they were massive, okay? And a lot of times they were timed even with the seasons. So Cana, for example, was a, a farming community, and they would time it a lot of times for when the harvest had been drawn in. So you can imagine that that was a time of rejoicing, not just for the wedding, but also in general, the people would be very happy. But the Jewish customs for weddings um, were interesting, so I'll just go over it quickly. Basically, about a year before the wedding, there would be an engagement, and the the engagement wouldn't be like our engagement so much today. It It was really more like our marriages are in a lot of ways because they would actually have a ceremony at the engagement, Um, And if you were to break off your engagement before the wedding, you'd have to go through a divorce. But there would be a year-long time in between, and that time would be used for preparation, where the the bridegroom would go and he'd prepare a room uh, in his house. He'd build an addition onto his father's house because the bride would be coming into the father's family. So the bridegroom would go and he'd build that house for over over the course of that year about. But they would also be preparing all the elements for the wedding. They were preparing all the food, everything that would be needed, the wine in this case as well. So here we have the small uh, Cana. We have this small community, farming community, and everyone knows everybody. Everyone's enjoying themselves or relaxing until the drama of the wedding. And for those of you who've had weddings, it's easy, to, you know, it's easy for that to be kind of dramatic uh, uh, in a wedding because it's a lot of work. People are tired. Here we have drama when Mary comes into Christ. They have no wine. Now, there's a lot of debate about what Mary is seeking from Christ. Is she seeking a miracle? But I I don't think that's very persuasive to me because if you think about that, we're not given any miracles before this point. So why would Mary be seeking a miracle? But if you think about on the other end, Mary's son is Christ, Jesus, the very wisdom of God. So this probably wasn't unusual 
from Mary. Maybe she had even gone to others first and asked them about this issue of the wine, and now she's coming to Christ to see his thoughts on it. Who wouldn't do that? But now this is where things get, I think, a little awkward in the text, this little conversation that between Mary and Jesus. Because what's happening is Mary has an intent, she, a physical attempt, or, uh, intent to provide more wine, and Christ has something else in mind. His father's business, if you can remember that, and, ch- and when he was 12 years old. So I think uh, that's why it gets awkward here. There's two intentions happening at the same time. And that would lead me into point number two. The reason for the sign. In other words, what's the need of a sign here? So I just want to look through this conversation of theirs. The first thing in verse 4, so Mary says they have no wine, and Jesus says to her in verse 4, Woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, if you're like me, when you read that, it can be striking because to call your mother woman, of course, in our culture, culture would be very disrespectful. But, of course, we know Christ is not capable of breaking the fifth commandment. And the truth of the matter is that this phrase, I was hoping maybe in the original language it wouldn't be awkward, but actually it is awkward in the original language as well. Because woman, though it is respectful, if you if were in the South, you might say ma'am. It is a, res- a respectful term. It's not something that sons would use of their mothers. So in that sense, it is an awkward phrase. But there's, this, this really brings us to the key of this passage in a lot of ways as well. Because as John says, points to us, this is the first miracle. This is his first miracle in his public ministry. And we see this in Scripture, in other areas of Scripture, where Christ has to distance himself. He distances himself from his family in the relationship of family relationships. Because now Mary is no longer going to be looking to Christ as her son, but rather her Savior. And so some other, aspect, or some other areas um, where that happened, if you can remember, um, where someone said, your mother and your brothers are outside, and Christ said, who are my mother and my brothers? Does that sound familiar? And he said, looking at his disciples, these are my mothers and brothers, right? Those who do the will of the Father, my Father. Another woman came up to Christ and said, Blessed is she who nursed you, speaking about Mary. And he said, rather, blessed are those who hear my Father's word and keeps it. Now, of course, Mary does both of those things, and we even see that in just a little bit. Then Christ goes on to say, woman, what does this have to do with me? And that gets back to what I was just speaking about a second ago. In the original language, is something, it's a common phrase, something like, what, are, what to you and to me? It's very well translated. What does this have to do with me? In other words, he's saying, you have an intent, I have an intent. My intent was before creation, Christ, the second person, her intent, which is a good intent, there's nothing wrong with it, to fill bellies. His intent to show to, that he's here to fill hearts, Right? What does your intent have to do with my intent? He's distancing himself so that people will see the reason for the sign. And then he says, my hour has not yet come. Now, when I, was, now when I would read this in the past, I'm already a little bit confused by the language happening here. And now even more so, my hour has not yet come. It's quite a mysterious phrase. Now, of course, if you've studied John, we've, we've probably read it many times, maybe you've tracked that 
Christ refers to his hour throughout John many times. And that's then later to be revealed, his hour is his time on the cross. When the work is done is when he gives up the spirit. That's his hour. But he doesn't explain that here. He just says, my hour. It's vague for Mary and for the disciples at this point. And so this week I was thinking, and I thought this was appropriate given that we're going to be studying signs. The big question really is, why signs? Why wouldn't Christ just explain very detailed, this is what's going to happen. This is your relationship with me now. Why doesn't God just drop down a systematic theology book? Why do we have the Old and the New Testament? Why don't we have a system of rules that just tells us when you do this sin and pray this prayer, on Monday pray this, on Tuesday do this, There's a lot of answers, really. It's a big question, and I I can't get into all the reasons, but one thing, God's fullness. Could you imagine trying to explain yourself to an ant, literally to an ant? How can we do that? How can an ant comprehend us? Well, I think the signs, in this sense, I'm not speaking only of the signs. I'm also speaking of all of Scripture, all of Revelation, because in the Old Testament, we have the same exact thing things pointing towards Christ, the shadow of Christ. So if we were here and the, 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 the lights were turned off and someone were walking down this hall and this is a bright hallway and we see someone's silhouette as it's starting to approach and get closer, we might have a little bit of knowledge about what that person looks like and they're coming closer, but we don't really know until they come into the room. And that's the very image of Christ, right? But in the Old Testament, we're given these shadowy images. And here again, we're given shadowy images Well, I want to ask us this, what do signs do? Because John, as I said last week, has a wonderful way of making something extremely complex and putting it into something simple. And he's able to capture all of that in one word. So he calls them signs. And what do signs do? You're probably thinking they point. Signs point. And so here, throughout Scripture, we're given sign and sign and sign again of what? Pointing to Christ. And here Christ is pointing to his hour, and they would be thinking, what is my hour? We're going to go over that. He's going, to, he's going to give them what is his hour, what are elements of his hour. But over and over again, we're given in Scripture this hour of Christ that we need. And I think that we need these signs over and over again, because if you're like me, you forget. We constantly are moving towards what? Christ's blood? No, constantly we're, we're always working towards some sort of form of works righteousness, whether we believe it or not. We're dull of hearing, as the Hebrew uh, author of the Hebrew says. We become dull of hearing. I, I thought about this. Um, you know, if to hear about Christ's blood for us and the need for Christ's blood alone over and over again doesn't become old for us. We have been blessed with a large family, and so I've seen our kids' births. And maybe you might be thinking, eight kids, is it still as amazing on the eighth time? And yeah, it is. And that's a physical birth, and it's, it's amazing to see that. What a, what a blessing of life from God. And now to be reminded again of spiritual birth that we need. 
In John chapter 5, Christ confronts the Jews, and he says to them, you're searching the scriptures that you may have life. In other words, the Jews thought that it wasn't Jesus that would give them life, but the scriptures themselves, yes, in them is revealed Christ. But as it were, if you were to be taken to heaven, the Jews would say, and God said, why should I let you into heaven? And the Jews would pull up the Bible and say, look, we have the scriptures. That's not enough. It has to be the blood of Christ. It can't be knowledge. Hymn uh, number uh, 452, I just want to read this. Reverend Rossi read it this morning. But it really struck me, Rock of Ages, the second verse. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. He talks about zeal. Tears that forever flow. None of those can atone for sin. So no matter how zealous you are for the Lord, no matter how guilty you feel for your sins, that won't save you. But aren't we drawn to these things every day? It's so easy for us to become cold and to rely on works righteousness, but not the blood of Christ. So I think, why so many signs? Why signs? Because we're dull of hearing and we need to hear it. And so let's look at the sign now together, the meaning of the sign. And I want to do this by uh, really three questions. This is my third point, the meaning of the sign. What was used in the meaning of the sign? What was produced in the sign? And then I want to look at this, the location of the sign, that is the wedding. So quickly, what was used? And again, uh, I think this occurred to me last year sometime, but I'm just amazed when I read something over and over, and if, you don't, if you're not really looking at all the details, you think, oh, yeah, yeah, jars. Okay, he used, put water in jars, it's that... But then when you read, what do you read about those jars? Because again, this is being captured. Christ did this before time so that we would understand what this hour, this, this hazy hour that he's talking about at this time to them, what is it, what is it going to be composed of? Well, it's, they're, they're jars used for the Jewish rites of purification. How they use those, that honestly doesn't really matter. They, they basically wash their hands with them. But he's saying, my hour, which is yet to come, is going to be an hour of purification. And when we think about water being used for purification, you can think back even to the tabernacle, where the priests would also wash their hands before they would go in to serve. And if they didn't wash their hands, they would die because of the holiness of God. That's why they would wear bells and ropes. So if you, if you ever heard that bell stop and you heard a thunk, you know, maybe someone forgot to wash their hands, but... So it's life. Water, a purification, is pointing to life with God. And then what does it say about the water? It was filled to the brim. Life, an abundant life. And perhaps, like me, you can remember John chapter 10, where he's talking about himself as a good shepherd. I came that they may have life and to have it abundantly. And if you've memorized that verse, I'm not sure if someone has uh, for this week, the next thing he says is, the shepherd comes to die for the sheep. And that's exactly what he's pointing to here with wine. Life, life abundantly, by blood. This is something that we're used to. We celebrate communion multiple times a year, so we're used to understanding that blood, Christ says, a new covenant is my blood. The feeding of the 5,000, which we'll, Lord willing, cover in a couple of weeks, he talks about, his body being bread that you have to eat. 
the same thing here. Wine is blood, the blood of Christ. So what's, what are we seeing in the sign? His hour that's coming up is going to be one of purification, which brings life before God, abundant life, by blood. And John and Mary saw this miracle, and they heard this, but they are also there for the truth. What is it pointing to? The cross. If you go and you read John's account, and this was in one of the hymns we were singing earlier, it might have been Rock of Ages, I can't remember, but John specifically says that when Christ's hour is done and his work is completed, one of the soldiers goes and he pierces his side. And do you remember what comes out of his side? But blood and water. This is what he was pointing to, his hour on the cross. Lastly, in terms of interpreting this, I think we need to talk about the location. A wineless wedding. This really was a big issue, not having wine. This would, would completely ruin the reputation of the, of the bridegroom's family. In fact, there could even be legal repercussions. They may have to pay the, the bride's family. And for then on, they'd be known as the family that couldn't provide wine. Now, there's a lot of debate if they were rich or poor. To me, it seems that they would be rich because they had servants. And even more so, that would be a stain on them, right? They have to maintain their high standard. But people would always know, oh, yeah, you know what? They're, they're proud now, but I remember that time they couldn't provide the wine. A wineless wedding. It reminds me of the Samaritan woman, which is just a couple chapters from here. We, we won't be going over that part, but... Because we are just like this in our lives. A wineless wedding, a failed bridegroom. If you remember, the Samaritan woman had many husbands. It seems that she was probably trying to solve her life issues by marriage. And by the time, I can't remember how many husbands it was, by the time she gets to her current man, who wasn't even her husband, I think she had realized at that point that this is not going to answer any of her issues. But the history of God's people is just like the Samaritan woman. That is, bridegrooms that cannot provide. We think about Adam, who if he was obedient, would be able to take his people into eternal life, but he failed. We heard a sermon on Moses, even with as much as God revealed himself to Moses and as much of the spirit as he gave to him. If you remember, Moses struck the rock and couldn't enter the promised land. We have David, of course, and his sin with Bathsheba as well, and the curse that that brought upon his family. Over and over and over again, the people of God have seen this sign, a failed bridegroom, and Christ now is sitting with the Samaritan woman, her true bridegroom, and just like her, he speaks to us kindly, but with clarity, and if we look back at the Jewish traditions, we could say this, that when Christ came, he, betrothed, he was betrothed to his bride. And just like they had a ceremony, that was what he did on earth. He provided on, for us on the cross. And what is he doing now? I think it's John 14. He's building a home for us with his father, preparing, making preparations. And throughout all of scripture as well, when it talks about the wedding, it's like the ten virgins. It says, be ready because the bridegroom is going to appear suddenly. 
And actually, now that I think about it, I didn't get to explain a lot of that. So, so but what, what, they, what they would do in the customs is the husband, this is important, the, the, the husband-to-be would go prepare a house, and then when the father said that everything's okay, probably talking to a lot of people, you know, everything's set for the wedding, this is really funny to me, the bridegroom with his groomsmen, essentially, would then make kind of a procession to the bride's house. Now, she didn't know this was happening. She would be suddenly surprised by, the, by, by her bridegroom, and they would essentially, maybe even literally, pick her up and take her back to his house, where then different ceremonies would happen. They'd have one with the parents, and then they'd have one throughout a couple days, and then they would have the feasting at the end. So here, and that, that really stuck out to me when I was studying this, but Christ will suddenly appear for us, but right now he's building a home for us. And Christ, in chapter 14, he really makes it seem that the moment that the Father approves and the moment that all preparations have been made, he'll come to us that instant. There won't be a time where he dawdles, but he wants us to be with him. And if you want to turn with me to Revelations 19... Revelations 19, I'm going to read 6 through 9. This is on page 1232. It's at the end of the Bible. This is Revelation 19. I'm going to start at 6. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. We just heard that actually a couple weeks ago. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen, linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. This is what we have to look forward to. Christ coming back, and now the feasting in heaven, the feast that will never end, and the consummation of the wedding. I thought about this. Can, can we stop here? But I want to push this just a little bit further. Because we talked about this last week when John talked about seeing when he, when he talked about seeing, there's two ways of seeing. There's just seeing with your eyes, and there's seeing and receiving. I thought about Matthew chapter 22, where the king sends out an invitation for the wedding feast to all of his people, and they reject it. You can think of the Israelites and the Jewish people. So then he sends out a wide invitation to everybody on the streets and fills his kingdom but if you remember, he pointed out one person who did not have a wedding garment. And he said, cast them out into eternal darkness. So here, maybe you can say now with me, I understand this sign just a little bit better. I can see Christ's, my need for Christ and his sacrifice. But again, it's not knowledge. And especially maybe for you young people who are getting to that age, it's, it doesn't matter if your parents are there with you at the wedding feast. It doesn't matter if they look great and they have the, the pure white wedding garment on, but you have to have it. We each have to have it. And this is exactly the problem that people had. Wine? 
We, we, Christ is providing wine? Great. Sign me up. There's no issues there. But the blood of Christ? No. That was rejected. The humility of Christ? In today's world, why do you think that is? Because it, doesn't it point to our need that we're sinners ultimately? If you're like us and, and you have children and you know Disney, where they're going, along with a lot of other things and the entertainment, could you imagine them saying that you're a sinner? No. Blood, because we're of our sins. But that's what we have to see. Especially for you young people, you have to understand that your sin caused the blood of Christ. But it was given because of his love for us. I just want to point to this as well. And Mary came to Christ. She didn't fully understand before he responded to her what was happening. But afterwards, I think she understood. And if you look at her response to the servants, in the original language, she says essentially to them, whatever he says, however he says it, do it. So the last thing I want to read, and this is in conclusion, this is John 4.10. This is from the Samaritan woman. John 4.10, this will just be on the, the page over, 10.56 here. Whatever Christ says, do it. So let's listen to him. The Samaritan woman at the well. I'm going to read 4, verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water. Let's go ahead and pray together as well for the same thing. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you this evening again. We thank you for your patience with us, and yet we thank you all the more that you grab us by the hand, that you throw on the robes of Christ, that you force our hearts to see the blood from Christ's side and to know that is because of our sins. So we pray now in our sins that you would give us the living water that is Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.